when I had children, it's obviously an awesome, beautiful, wonderful thing to have children. But if you've ever fostered the somewhat unrealistic idea that men and women are exactly the same, it really does your head in, because that's when you realise, no, women are different to men. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. Hello, you're listening to Premier Christian Radio. I'm Abby Thomas and this is The Profile, where we interview a different guest each week about their life, faith and ministry. The Profile is brought to you by Premier Christianity, the UK's leading Christian magazine. You can subscribe now to enjoy the print magazine through your door every month, plus full online access to daily articles on news, faith and culture. Just visit premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe to get the latest special offer. Today we're hearing from the Christian Institute social policy analyst, Dr Sharon James. Sharon's work with the Christian Institute means she's regularly called upon to speak on subjects such as abortion and assisted dying in front of churches, politicians and the wider public too. Sharon's dedicated much of her life to providing pastoral support and teaching to Christian women. She helped to establish the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches Women's Ministry team. And her latest booklet for the Christian Institute is called Critical Theory, Challenging Truth and Reality. Welcome to The Profile on Premier Christian Radio, Dr Sharon James. Thank you very much. Really nice to be speaking to you. I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. You're an author, you're a speaker, and you work as social policy analyst for the Christian Institute. And you've written 11 books and many more booklets and articles. And your latest booklet is about critical theory, which we're going to come on to later in the interview. But it'd be great to just begin a little bit with where you are now, um, before we go back to hear what brought you here. How do you spend your time day to day at the moment? Right, so I live in North London, where my husband Bill is principal of London Seminary, which is the seminary founded by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Some of our readers might, listeners even, might have heard of him. Uh, but I work up in Newcastle on Tyne, the great northeast. I love the northeast. I work for the Christian Institute, um, and in practice, I spend some of my week up there, some of my week down in London, um, about half half in term time, as it were. Uh, but I love the journey, LNER. You go through Durham, you go through Darlington, great journey, and I enjoy being both in London and Newcastle. Excellent, and we're speaking in central London today. We are, we are. enjoying the, the locality. It's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. um, tell me a little bit about the Christian Institute and, and your work with them. You are a social policy analyst, what does that mean? <laughs> well, I'll just tell you about the Christian Institute first. Effectively, we want to try and help Christians to be confident, to be salt and light, living as citizens in this nation. Many people today want us to keep our faith to ourselves and just push it firmly into our own heads, into our private box, maybe keep it for Sundays. But we believe that Jesus calls us to be salt and light and to love our neighbour. And to love our neighbour means to take an interest in the public policy issues and pieces of legislation that work for their good or for their ill. So we do a lot of research on current controversial contemporary issues such as the push by some for assisted suicide which we think is a terrible disrespect for human life but many others we do research on these issues we put out many briefings to churches and uh, church leaders to equip them to speak out on those issues we take meetings in churches we also provide briefings to politicians who are concerned about these common good 
concerns and they always commend us for the reliability of our research. And we have a legal defence fund. We protect people whose consciences have been, perhaps they feel trampled on. We will often advise behind the scenes, but sometimes we will actually uh, go to law to defend particularly religious liberty concerns. Okay, and we'll come back to perhaps some of that later in the interview, but let's go back, as I said, to the beginning. Tell me a little bit about your family and what your childhood was like. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Sussex, hugely happy childhood. My parents brought me up from the very earliest to know why we're here on this earth, which is quite an important thing to know. So I knew from the earliest stage we are here because God made us for his glory and we, we can love him and enjoy him and know him and know that there is a God in heaven who loves us and cares for us. That's a very secure upbringing for a child to have. And they taught us that God's put us here to love him, enjoy him and serve other people. So that was a great legacy as well. My, my parents were, were joyful people. They loved God. They loved other people. My dad was a pastor. He had originally been called to a little chapel in Sussex which had gone down to one old lady who had prayed for years for revival. And then he was part of a small revitalization project. And during the 1970s, uh, there was 60s and 70s, there was enormous um, blessing spiritually. And I just remember as I was growing up, seeing people praying fervently for conversions and there being changed lives and transformed lives. So I know that Jesus can transform lives. And then for myself, um, as a teenager, I was given that gift of repentance and faith and knowing Jesus Christ, he loved me, he gave himself for me. I came into that direct assurance of faith myself. My parents had given me a wonderful legacy and I I really hope that's an encouragement to uh, Christians who have to do with young people at any stage, whether they're parents or not. Young people are impressionable and to give them that sense that Christianity is a joyful thing and a real thing and a living thing, let's pass that legacy on to the next generation. So tell me a little bit more then about your faith becoming your own um, when it stopped being your parents' faith, I guess. Yeah, it came in stages, as is often the case. I mean, even as a small child, I remember reading uh, Patricia St. John's Treasures of the Snow, which is a beautiful, beautiful book, and that conveyed to me the reality of forgiveness of sins and the reality of perfect love casts out fear. Children are often frightened about things, but if we know Jesus, we don't have to be frightened. And then when I was about 12, I came upon a little booklet by the great American revival preacher Jonathan Edwards called Heaven, A World of Love. And I remember spending 12 and a half old P on that booklet. I could actually afford it. And it just blew my mind because it described God as the God of beauty, the God of truth, heaven as the place of uh, glory and love. And I thought, you know what? Young people yearn after beauty, don't they? I just want to know this beautiful God. Um, and that, that it was actually a sermon of, of Jonathan Edwards. It told me of my own sin, my need for repentance, my need for salvation. And what a beautiful saviour Christ is as well. So 12, 13, I was baptised when I was 14, became a church member. And then when I left home, of course, to go to uni, then you really are out in where your faith is confronted and challenged big time. Um, And I grew in faith and assurance then, and university was a great time. And you met your husband there? I met my husband, which was marvellous. Yes, yes, um, that was all good. And... My husband went on, he'd, he'd done engineering, he went on to work in industry before going into the Christian ministry. I had seven years in teaching in different schools, which I loved, including two years out in Malawi. I did British um, voluntary service overseas, and I loved that. Um, we finally got married after, after, after a while. I was, I was, I think, infused with feminism at one point and thought independence was the great goal. Uh, but, but my husband knew better. I'm so glad he did. We've been married for 37 years now. 
congratulations. I Thank mean, you. that's wonderful. We'll come back to feminism later. I've got some some things to chat about about with around that as well. Um, but you went on to study an American seminary together. Yes, indeed. After my husband had worked for several years in industry to get, if you like, life in the real world, he always knew that he wanted to go into ministry. Um, we went over to Toronto Baptist Seminary, um, but we both studied the MDiv, so we both did the Hebrew, the Greek, um, all of the different disciplines. It was an amazing training, but also a very practical training. It was an inner-city church we were based at, which worked with the refugees, door-to-door work, open-air work. Um, all sorts of things, as well as a very heavy study program. It was a marvellous time. And when we came back to England, uh, my husband took on the pastor of a, a church in the Midlands where he was a pastor for 26 years. During that time, I was very involved in women's ministries. Um, but was so concerned, um, Abigail, about the, 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 the suffering caused to women by policies which pushed them away from their own children, out of their families, in the name of so-called equality, women were being damaged, I felt. And the uh, fallout from family breakdown was impacting many women. And so I, I began to be concerned about that issue and I ended up doing a PhD in family policy just to really kind of try and understand what was going on. And you've you spoken very positively about your life story, but were there times of struggle? Were there times where things weren't quite so easy? Well, it's strange. One of the times that you'd think would be the greatest blessing was perhaps for me one of the greatest struggles When I had children, it's obviously an awesome, beautiful, wonderful thing to have children. But if you've ever fostered the somewhat unrealistic idea that men and women are exactly the same, it really does your head in, because that's when you realise, no, I am a woman, I am a mother, and I need to think this through. Women are different to men. Now, that hard time, I I found that quite a challenging time, because we're so much brought up to think that life is about our independence. When you've got babies, they are dependent on you and you cannot be independent of these precious little lives. They are so dependent on you. So I thought through, I had to go back to to the Bible, but also I read everything I could lay my hands on, on feminism and radical stuff. And I came to the sort of settled conviction that God is the creator and his design is good and he's designed men and women different for a really good reason. And there's something beautiful about being a woman about motherhood um, and about new life so so that hard time where I was you know battling through the sleepless nights and all the rest of it actually drove me into thinking through uh, those issues in a way that blessed me and then I was able to I trust use that to help other women you talk about feminism in in quite a negative light yes of course there's many Christian feminists who might argue that actually feminism has brought many benefits yes. to women, the vote, yes, the yes, rights yes. to work, yes. uh, consequences for yes. marital rape, for yes. example. Do you see the positives? Well, in a sense, I take the story back further, Abby. I've, I've written a, um, a whole chapter about Christianity and the dignity of women in my book, How Christianity Transformed the World. It's the biblical teaching that men and women are absolutely equal in the image of God that through the years has been one of the drivers, for example, of Christians pioneering female education. And female education is the single biggest factor in equal rights for women. And so when you look through the centuries, it's very often biblical Christians who've been at the forefront of arguing for equal opportunities. And of course, we'd have no argument with the first wave of feminism that argued for equal legal opportunities. And I suppose, yes, I'm being somewhat... um, one should be careful. I should perhaps always talk about gender feminism or radical feminism. It's the second wave of feminism in the 1960s onwards that was so associated with the sexual 
revolution and the breaking down of moral norms um, and very much an attack on the natural family. It was those kind of uh, ways of thinking that in practice, I believe, and I, I saw in different cultural contexts, damaged real women. And many theologians who, who might not choose the word feminist, like mm. you might not choose mm. that word, would, would argue that the Bible teaches much stronger gender inclusivity, including in leadership that's been taught by some churches. Often the case is, it could be argued, that the, the church has, has silenced women. Sometimes that is what is certainly the case, and one would never want to go and defend any unnecessary um, failure to recognise women's giftings. But then there is difference of genuine differences of interpretation as to how those giftings can be expressed. But again, the, the, the big story, the good story, is that through the centuries you've had very powerful, very dynamic uh, Christian women as well as Christian men proclaiming the gospel, um, spreading the kingdom, blessing people. And probably if you looked at the uh, figures that I talk about in church history when I'm speaking about the defense of human rights and dignity and justice. There'd be as many women as men in those different chapters where you're looking at that good story to tell. Tell me a little bit about your book, How Christianity Transformed the World, some uh, inspiring stories there of of people who've made a real difference. Yeah, so when you look at the themes of justice and human dignity and just caring for neighbour, I go back over 2,000 years of church history and I take 10 themes, dignity of women, healthcare, philanthropy, education, and I show that from the inception of the Christian church at Pentecost, Christians have had a transformative and powerful impact. If you just think in terms of uh, healthcare, it was Christians who formed the first hospitals. Christians were the first welfare organisation. Right from the early centuries, they were providing care and aid to people in famine situations, in plague situations. Some of the great cities in the Roman world were in a plague hit. You had vivid first-hand descriptions of the pagans fleeing the city to save their lives, whereas Christians deliberately stayed uh, to nurse the victims, whether it was Christians or pagans, and died in the... In, in the doing because it was so dangerous but they didn't care because they knew where they were going it's very interesting when you look at for example the chapter on dignity of women I quote a book by two liberal feminists called Half the Sky it says strange when you go to the most remote places in Africa situations of greatest need you tend to find the aid workers and development organizations suddenly quite scarce they stay in the cities it's the Christian missionaries who go into the really hard places and burrow in for a lifetime And I'm thinking, yeah, but that's because we know this isn't the only life we have. We can afford to lose our life and give it away to serve others because we know that there is another life after this one. So the book just shows from different continents, different racial backgrounds, different groups, Christians just being like Jesus and the impact it made in the different areas of life. And... uh Tell me about your favourite story from that book. What's an individual who's really... Tell me about an individual who really inspired you. Well, there's a little girl. I don't know whether some of your listeners might remember the iconic photograph from the Vietnam War of five naked children running away from a napalm attack. It's a horrible, searing image of these children screaming. Heartbreaking. And then many of your listeners will also know the story of the central little girl in that photograph who was about eight years old when her body was burned all over and she suffered life-changing injuries. And she was full of... When, when she came round and recovered, she didn't even want to live. And for years, she was consumed with hatred and bitterness. And then she found Jesus. And now she spent the rest of her life 
Kim Fook. She spent the rest of her life campaigning for child victims of war. And it's her Christian faith that has enabled her to transform that horrific, uh, if you like, crime that was done against her into doing good to others. And that's what Jesus enables us to do. He can actually change our lives so that the horrible stuff in our life, whether it's our own sin or stuff that's been done to us, we can find forgiveness ourselves for our own sin. We can forgive other people in Christ and let that go for the sin that's been done to us. And then we can turn around and spend the rest of our lives actually making a difference for other people. So Kim Fook was, I think, one of the most iconic um, in the book, but I tell the stories of many, many others, old and young, men and women, and from different races. And you've written lots of books. Yes. What's your next project going to be on, do you think? Well, I, I've, my next project is going to be on protecting children because I, I just I can't tell you how how heartbreaking it is to see the innocence of children destroyed. One of the things we are working on all the time and have done for many, many years at the Christian Institute is very, very perverse and inappropriate sex, material, sex education materials given to young children. And I think that actually is a corruption of, of their innocence and an abuse of their minds. So child protection, protecting children, the, the ways that our culture is failing to protect our children, but how as Christians we need to stand up and protect our children. Um, that one will be dedicated to my grandchildren, I think, but to all children. They, they deserve better than what our culture is giving them at the moment. Uh, your your latest booklet is about critical theory. Uh, I think it's a concept lots of people have heard of, perhaps critical race theory, more handbook, more often, but critical theory as a as a wider um, theory, I suppose, <laughs> for want of a better word. Tell us about what critical theory is and, and why it concerns you. Yeah, well, first off, make a distinction between critical thinking and critical theory, because we all need to be critical thinkers. We need to think critically about every issue. But critical theory is more of a technical term describing an ideology that arose during the 20th century, which framed society in terms of divisions between groups of people, which one could loosely describe as those with privilege, those without privilege, the oppressed, the oppressor. And the thinking behind it was that wherever you find any disparities in outcome in a society, it's because powerful groups are oppressing other groups. But it was more profound than that because actually when you go back to some of the architects of critical theory, people like Gramsci, people like Horkheimer, people like Adorno, they saw the whole structure of, if you like, Western civilization as being an overbearing, crushing power that was uh, suppressing normal people and they wanted to pull the structure down. But in order to pull the structure down, they wanted to sow suspicion and hostility between different groups. And I haven't got time to go into the whole story about how that merged with very many different aspects of postmodernism. But it effectively, by the beginning of the 21st century, we have a culture where people are encouraged to think of themselves in terms of the group they belong to. And why am I worried about it? I'm worried about it because the Christian biblical worldview is, number one, that God is the creator and we all go back to the same first parents. We are all one race, fundamentally. And we should not be thinking in terms of what divides us. There is a essential unity of the human race, which we is a glorious thing and it's a beautiful thing. And then number two, 
The biblical worldview tells us that every individual is precious to God because every individual is made in his image. And it's the biblical worldview that holds on to the dignity of the individual. When you go back to the architect's critical theory, they say that narratives, they call it in inverted commas, such as universal human rights or freedom under the law or equal legal status, these are all part of the oppression that is keeping normal people down. And they all, those, those uh, ideals can be challenged. Whereas I would say, no, those ideals are based in the character of God and we, we can't afford to throw them away. So I want to hold on to the unity of the human race and I want to hold on to the preciousness and distinctiveness of each individual. And both of those things are undermined by just seeing people in terms of their group identity and certain groups as guilty and certain groups as innocent. Many Christians who might totally re- reject that ideology that you, you talk about, but would still maintain that there is systemic or structural racism mm. within British society. Mm. And they would argue that looking at historical examples mm. of racism, for example, mm. um, and looking at the real impact of that on people today is really important. It's not about creating division, mm. but it's actually about improving understanding. and Absolutely. Health. One would have to say, sadly, tragically, there is racism. In Britain and one would have to say that absolutely every instance of racism is wrong and should be challenged but when you look at how that racism is challenged in human societies you have found that it's been the biblical worldview behind challenges to inequality and oppression and the major social reforms have been carried out by Bible-believing Christians. Now It's different to say there is racism, which is a fact, a tragic fact, and one has to oppose that, to saying there is systemic racism. Because when you say there is systemic racism, you are then saying that, by definition, every member of a certain group is guilty and every member of the other groups are innocent. So I've got with me a copy, for example, of uh, White Fragility, which says it is impossible to have a positive white identity. So when you're teaching that kind of thing, which some children are being taught in schools increasingly, that does sow division between races. And I am concerned about that. But I would also say that Christians should always be at the front line of opposing injustice from a biblical perspective, which is that God says that every human being made in his image has the moral law written on their hearts. We will all answer to him for any disdain of any human being made in his image but it has to be equal justice for all and it has to be an equal standard for all so do you not believe then in structural injustice do you not believe that there are some groups of people who are more disadvantaged and some who are more privileged well it depends how you define structural injustice clearly there are some uh, social situations where institutions are operating in an unjust way clearly and I mean even if you look out at beyond Britain if you for example took the situation where you know over a million Uyghurs are being persecuted in China there's something deeply wrong with that system or you could say what about the caste system that still operates in India although it's theoretically illegal people say that's one of the biggest human rights situations ever there's something structural but in this technical frame of uh, referral that critical justice uses systemic or structural is used in a way that implies that there is such a thing as group guilt But you can't have group guilt because there isn't group responsibility. You have to take individual institutions and people and um, actions to account. But you don't say that an entire group 
um, is entirely guilty and that there can never be any redress. So it's that particular technical um, definition of structural or systemic or institutional um, racism that I think we absolutely have to reject because it in practice ends up resulting in a different form of racism. You're listening to The Profile on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Abby Thomas and I'm talking to Dr Sharon James from the Christian Institute. Too many of us are living in a bubble and not hearing both sides of the world's important stories. It's time for a more rounded perspective. It's time to discover Premier Christianity. Balanced, confident, relevant, faith-filled. Discover fresh biblical perspectives as we bring you wide-ranging stories that impact the church. Discover the go-to source for Christian news. Subscribe at premierchristianity.com. Now only £5 for three months. Let's look at one of the examples you use in your booklet, Critical Theory, Challenging Truth and Reality, which you can get on your website. Um, You make the argument that you may be the best qualified person applying for a job, but the company has to meet diversity and inclusion targets, and so you don't get an interview. But is that actually true? Because stats from Oxford University research show that people from ethnic minorities have to send 60% more applications to get a positive response compared to white applicants. Okay, well... There are many, many different statistics on that. And I think that the point is that you are using statistics, which is the right way of going about looking at it. One of the uh, central claims of critical theory is that appealing to data, statistics, science, objective uh, reality is an oppressive thing to do. You should, by definition, just take the claims of those who claim to have been discriminated against. If you take it to the um, example of uh, gender, for example... I just simply have to say that both the data and the observation and the experience over some decades indicated to me that companies were being pressured to take on female targets and that if you are thinking about certain um, occupations, it doesn't necessarily benefit the women or the men because I would simply say that there is such a thing as preference theory which says that women and men are sometimes drawn to different things. Catherine Hackim, who's an economist with the London School of Economics, not a Christian at all, she's written widely on that. And over several decades, she documented that women and men actually have different preferences when it comes to work-life patterns and occupations. So if you've got workplaces insisting on very strict um, gender targets, you, you sometimes end up with a not great situation. So I simply think that you have to, you have to balance out um, that the, the key is making sure that every individual can realise their potential as an individual. But could you not argue that by allowing women the opportunity to apply for jobs, no one's forcing them to apply for these jobs? Oh no, there should always be opportunity to apply, absolutely. But it's the question of whether you end up with some men not being taken on because you have to let more women in. So it's that kind of... I'd be fascinated to see if there are statistics that prove that because the the evidence I've seen is that women are disadvantaged in the workplace rather than advantaged. Well, I'd happily come back to you on that. I mean, as I say, at least you're appealing to evidence, which is something that some people would say we shouldn't even be allowed to do. So, So that's fine. And we could argue about that. But I'm saying that the biblical worldview is that every individual would have to be respected and equality of opportunity is an absolute must. But again, in the discourse of critical theory, they speak about um, these tropes of equality of opportunity, equality before the law, all being 
part of our oppressive structure that, 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 that works to disadvantage people, which I find very, very alarming. So you wouldn't ever think there's a case for positive discrimination, taking proactive steps to help people from... I think positive discrimination ends up with worst injustice. Um, and if you, if you look at some of the, um, the black ad- academics in America who have uh, written about positive affirmation in that context, the injustice comes in when anybody looks at you in a high position and says to themselves, oh, you only got there because of your identity. And they say, we don't want that for our children. We want, we want, we want our children to have the dignity of believing that they are in that position because they are up for it and they have the, um, they have the capacity to do that. And, uh, you know, I, I just think that John McWhorter's book, Woke Racism, for example, he, he talks about his children. He says, I don't want my children in that position where they think that they're somewhere because somebody's done them a favour. I think that um, it, it can end up doing worse injustices. Well, that would all be, be great if there was a level playing field. But as I said in those statistics mm. before, 60% more applications people from ethnic minorities have to spend 60% more applications just to get an interview. There isn't a level playing field to start with. Yeah. You know, if we look at yeah. race and the law, you know... Um, well, that's one particularly egregious example of abuse that should be challenged, and there are lots of equality uh, laws that are precisely there to challenge egregious um, injustice like that. But the way to approach these things is by means of legal reform and when you look at the societies where the most advances have been made it's by means of proper considered legal reform and I think that in a sense we're both on the same page there because we're talking about sensible legal measures critical theory actually says that all of that is just papering over the cracks of an unequal civilization it all needs to be pulled down the structures need to be pulled down anyway so I think kind of we're we're veering towards common ground there and one needs to say well one could argue about that but critical theory would say that's all that's all wallpaper anyway yeah I, I want to just present mm. the opposite view sure, so that people sure. can get a, a good, good sure. chance to sure. to hear both sides of the story um some Christians would make the point that Jesus spoke out against groups who exerted their privilege in, yeah, in a damaging yeah, way, or yeah. the prophet Micah. Absolutely. But the point is, when you when you um, look at the biblical texts on injustice, they are searing in their indictment of tyranny and injustice. And the wonderful thing about the Bible is it establishes the, the principle um, of the rule of law. And you have the encapsulation of that in the story of the vineyard where wicked King Ahab says well I fancy that and I'll have it and Jezebel says well you can have it because you're king and he ends up um, grabbing the vineyard and Naboth is killed but the prophet says no the king and the poor person will equally answer to God they're equal under the law the rule of law is that all are equally answerable to God and so again the biblical just biblical justice is and God's moral law is the standard for everybody. And ultimately, we will all answer to God at the last day with that standard of moral law that's on our conscience. But even in human law, which is God appoints rulers to, to do good and to judge evil and to, to control societies in, in, in a way, it should reflect the biblical command that all are equal under the law, including the kings, including the rulers, one law. And that's enshrined in Magna Carta, which itself was quoting from... Uh, biblical principles. Many uh, Christians believe that social justice is a key part of being a Christian, though, yes, as well. Yes, um, absolutely. Prioritizing, so, you know, people 
uh, showing people Absolutely. love, being peacemakers yeah. and activism like protesting against climate injustice or racial mm. injustice, for example. I know you're talking about mm. things should be done through the law. Mm. At what point do you feel that that is just not enough or do you think there's never a point where the law isn't enough? Well, social justice is a biblical concept, but I, but again, we have to look at definitions. So social justice, small s, small j, God is the God of justice and God defines justice. So real social justice, I think, is biblical justice, divine justice, where all alike are under the same law. When you have capital S, capital J, social justice, you end up saying that some groups are more guilty than other groups, some are less guilty, and I don't think that's biblical justice. So it's really tricky where you're saying, well, I want social justice, but I don't want social justice. I want biblical justice, small j, small small s, small j, but the critical theory version of social justice, group justice, I don't think is true justice at all. In terms of activism, protection of life, I would say protection of life might be one of those uh, cases where you just need to protect life. And and the Bible would be clear on that because of the dignity of of all human life. I mean, I guess people who are doing environmental activism might argue that that is protection of life because of the the catastrophe of, well, of the climate. You would you could have you could have debates about that, but the point is that the Bible says that individual that the human life made in God's image, God will judge the shedding of innocent blood. Um, there would be a very clear application of that towards medical ethics. So I think that the alarming thing at the moment is that an I a worldview that's that denies the Creator God and denies absolute truth and denies ultimate morality is slipping into what I would call a culture of death where for centuries we've had a culture of life saying that every human life from conception to natural birth should be protected when you ditch the idea of a creator God and you ditch the idea of that uniqueness of each human individual as made in the image of God and we're all on a continuum with nature ooh, we're, we're, we're getting to the point where some people say well life should be judged on the basis of whether people can enjoy relationships, whether people have got capacity, whether they're strong. And you look at Canada now, where the vulnerable, the poor, the weak, um, the elderly, the depressed are being told, oh, the state can help you kill yourself. Well, I call that a culture of death, but it's based on a deep disrespect for human life as made in the image of God. Um, So I'd go back to the point that real justice and real human rights and real human dignity has to be based on the absolute conviction that there is a creator God, human life is made in his image, and that's why it should be protected. And going back to critical theory, in the booklet, Critical Theory, and the lectures which are available on the website, I show that embedded into critical theory is the conviction that there's no transcendent reality, no God, and that means that there's no judge, we're not going to have to answer to a God, there's no ultimate absolute morality, we can each make our own morality, and actually, if there's no transcendent God, we can we can more or less define our own truth. And that's where you get people saying, my truth, your truth, and we're on very, very slippery sand. So biblical justice is what we must strive for, which is revealed to us by God in his moral law, and it's placed on our conscience. Does the, the Christian Institute's focus on issues of personal morality, hot-button topics, mm. like you mm. mentioned earlier, perhaps transgender mm. issues, marriage, and so mm. on, do you ever worry that that's reinforcing this view that evangelical churches are anti-gay, anti-women, becoming known for what Christians are against rather than what Christians are for? Well, why I went into work for, for, for the Christian Institute is because I have a passion for, in my own case, I have a passion for child protection. 
And when you look at what's impacting children badly, it's very often issues to do with the way that structurally in our society, and you've talked about structural injustice, there are actually structural discriminations against family life that undermine stable family life rather than prop it up and, and support it. And over 26 years of pastoral work, I saw the disastrous impact of that, particularly on children. And then also, obviously, if you have children and grandchildren, you have a passion that their, their innocence should be protected. And when you look at the impact of the sexual revolution and the breaking down and the blurring of all boundaries, and the blurring of boundaries is also a key tenet of critical theory, you want them to blur the boundaries between adult and child with regard to sexuality. Children are told they have sexual rights. Well, that's, that's a disaster as far as child protection is concerned. Um, and many of the issues that the Christian Institute um, does campaign on do have to do with family freedoms because family freedoms are at the basis of society's freedoms. We also campaign on religious liberty issues, but that has to do with free speech issues as well, and that has a good impact on everybody. We don't campaign on all issues because we have a good relationship with other organisations that, you know, if we all tried to do the same things, we'd all be reinventing the same wheel. Um, so we have a particular, if you like, portfolio of issues, but fundamental to all of them is the idea that we want the common good, we want to love neighbour, we want to have a community and an environment and a nation where we are free to speak truth, proclaim the gospel, um, have our family lives without state interference and teach the gospel. So if those are the kind of issues that our supporters expect us to stand for. Would you say that you've experienced discrimination yourself? Well, I would say that I've ministered in different cultural situations where I've seen immense discrimination happening on a whole variety of levels. So, yeah, I've, I've, I've travelled for ministry to the, to the Middle East and there is quite a lot of discrimination that goes on in various countries there. I've, I've travelled to the Far East and I won't name the countries, but there is a great deal of oppression and injustice there. Um, and in some of those more different traditional cultures, there might well be... Uh, a view of women as very much second-class citizens. And I would simply go back to the reality that when you see the impact of the gospel in those countries, which I have done, one of the first indicators is that women find dignity or people who are considered to be untouchable find dignity and joy. And it's just a very, very beautiful thing. When you, and then when you, there is sometimes an intersection, if you like, of people being rubbish, treated like rubbish because they are female and part of an untouchable class and poor and xyz and then you see their face when they say well i found jesus and i have dignity and that is the true equalizer the true leveler and as a church we absolutely hold on to that that in christ there is a plan to unite by creation we're all one race but then in the church we are one and that is a very beautiful story to take into any situation of discrimination sometimes i've heard people speaking about critical theory critical race theory in particular in a as a very um, almost a defensive way I guess like uh, afraid of the, of the impact that it's having on people um, and not wanting to, as perhaps we've talked about already not wanting to classify people into to groups of oppressor and um, oppressor but do you think it's it's important to, to listen to the faith and, and theology of people from minority gr minority groups or those who have experienced discrimination as you, as you spoke about and learn from them I think some, sometimes I, I've worried that um, we should only listen. We're told we should only listen to people who are right, but sometimes the people who we're told are right perhaps come from our background or our experience. Well, isn't the reality of it 
Abigail, that whenever we encounter a human being, we encounter an image bearer. There is no human being that we can look into their eyes and say, you are not a divine image bearer. So we respect every person as made in the image of our triune God. And we should never look down on them or refuse to listen to them. But when we look at somebody who's made in the image of, of God, it's because we believe in God that we know that God's word and God's truth and God's gospel applies equally to all of us. And we can all come to Christ, just as we are, as the old hymn says it. And, and, and he transforms us to be like him. And that's the same message for everybody. So absolutely we listen to people. Absolutely we love people. Absolutely we respect people. Um, but we, we do need to understand some of the challenges that are coming into our culture. And critical theory is just a shorthand way of describing many of these challenges, which are damaging the um, not only the well-being of individuals, and again, my passion is for children, but also the cohesion of society. We haven't talked about critical law theory, which is one perhaps one of the most um, recent mm. um, developments of, of critical theory. You talk about... You have a, uh, in your booklet again. You say that victims of crime in minority groups might see the offender get a heavier sentence. Do you have any evidence for that? I've got a lot of evidence from America, and I, I give the footnotes in in the um, booklet. So if listeners are interested in that, it's uh, christian.org.uk forward slash critical theory. The booklet's there. The footnotes are there. And then a lot more footnotes in my book, The Lies We Are Told, The Truth We Must Hold, uh, because there are chapters there on this with the footnotes. So one's not saying there is no justice left. There is evidently justice left. But you do get a strand of thinking that says that the concept of rule of law, equality before the law, that has to be uh, discounted and done away with because the purpose of law should be restorative and reparative to remedy past injustices and to tilt the balance back um, but effectively if you ditch the idea of equality before the law you you are in you are in I think you're in sinking sand but I, I, I would argue that from from the statistics people don't have equality before the law the law well, that at the has moment. to be addressed, I mean, and again, yeah, absolutely. And we, we absolutely, I find it interesting that it's often Christians who've been on the front edge of penal reform, um, reform in prisons, and reform of the legal system. So yes, we, we should go down the route of seeking justice via the legal system. But yeah, let it be via data and objective evidence and truth, because the critical theory slant on that would be Truth claims are power grabs. Science is an oppressive, white, heteronormative, uh, systemic injustice that, that just keeps people down. You're using your facts to discount my feelings. So, of course, we should challenge where there are injustices happening in prisons or in the law, wherever they may be. But if you look at the countries where you've got the best record of reform over decades and over centuries, it's actually been Christians with that countries where there's been that Christian foundation of rule of law because without the rule of law nobody is safe and that rule of law is very fundamentally a biblical principle as even um, again you look at non-Christians like Tom Holland they would say yep yeah, that sense of equal because all made in the image of God rule of law all of these things they're based in the biblical worldview. I guess a lot of Christians are, like you say, are campaigning on those issues and are, are trying to make a difference. I mean, the statistics are pretty uh, staggering, Sharon. Um, 
stop and st- search statistics mm. here in London, mm. uh, black uh, young men are almost ten times more likely to experience stop and search than a, a white a white young man. Uh, it's it's it, it goes across well, like, the country. Yeah, you know, eighteen yeah. percent of the population isn't black and minority ethnic, but twenty eight percent of the prison population is fr- from those backgrounds. Surely, uh, we should you know, look we at injustice. To- we should look at oppression. And I said right up front, there is racism. Mm. I'm not questioning that. But the way that you move from injustice to greater justice, generally, well, always when you look at human history, it's been by means of reform and reformers going at it, looking at how to help, looking at what can be addressed. And when you look at the um, situations where there has been reform, again, it's been because those reforms have been based on a biblical worldview. But often those things have also come through protest, activism. Uh, these are some of the, the things that uh, you, you write about how critical theory leads to activism, and that's perhaps a criticism of it. Do you not think that activism has been a positive force for good in, in changing laws? Sometimes, yes, but the point is with critical theory is that the architects of critical theory, if you go back to the um, thinkers behind it, they actually said that reform was too slow. You have to have violent revolution to pull it all down. So you're looking at pulling down the power structures, pulling down the institutions, and they named um, the law enforcement agencies, governments, family, church, education, all of these institutions, because they see them all as, if you like, passing on transmitting what they regarded as privilege from one generation to the next. Now, so activism, if it's very tightly defined in terms of protecting life, for example, but in terms of pulling everything down, history shows that that is a car crash. So what do you think Christians should do about racism? What's the Christian Institute, for example, doing to tackle racism? We are putting out materials that help Christians understand that there is a creator God Every human being is made equally in his image and every human being has to be treated with respect because of that. Now, if you look at the most uh, discriminated against and attacked human beings right now at this moment, you would have to actually admit that it's unborn human beings. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's a very direct implication of the dignity of human life. So, essentially, we're putting out uh, materials that says, let's look at... Uh, society as not just socially constructed, in which case we can deconstruct the family, deconstruct everything, pull it all down. It's divinely constructed, divinely ordained. We should respect the God-given pattern of family. And if you actually started supporting families rather than putting impediments in the way of stable family foundation, that would be a huge blessing to some of the most disadvantaged groups in our society at the moment. So, as I say, we have a limited portfolio of actual political issues, but at the heart of our issues is belief that human life is to be protected and Christians should be speaking out to protect human life. And we should be all seeking to be good citizens who seek to, if you like, speak out the glory of the gospel in terms of how it unites us rather than divides us. So it's wonderful to go into churches where you see truly united communities of people of different groups all worshiping God together. That's what we want to see. That's what we want to. Um, that's what we want to experience the joy of. And again, when you travel to different cultures, just the joy of meeting people from all different cultural 
diverse backgrounds and saying we are one in Christ, uh, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. That that is the most beautiful thing. But I, to go back to some of the things we campaign on, one of the things at the moment is literally uh, th- religious liberty threats. If if we're if we're going to be told as churches what we can say and what we can't say, which is what some would like to bring in via what they are proposing in the upcoming proposed conversion therapy ban, we might then be told we have to start taking bits out of our Bible. And when you look at the places in the world where the church is fastest growing, and it is growing very fast in some areas, it's those areas where the church stands on the Bible and says, your word is truth. Um, And I don't think we should compromise on saying, okay, we'll just ditch some bits of the Bible if somebody tells us to. We we shouldn't do that. Yeah, I mean, people would disagree with you, I'm sure, about the interpretation of, of those texts as well but that's not a discussion for now. We don't have the time to, to go into that. Let's go um, to your hopes for the UK church. And you've just touched on some of the, the beautiful things you've seen. What are your hopes for the UK church? Well, my hopes are that I see a younger generation coming up who, are, who love the Lord, who want to be... Uh, they want to love God, they want to love neighbour. So I am hugely encouraged when I look at some of the younger gener- generation. And I think that... Sometimes when things are challenging, and things are challenging for Christians at the moment, I mean, one of the elements of this whole uh, critical theory, which we've not touched on, is very much to say that Christianity is is an evil, toxic, bigoted uh, religion, which I absolutely uh, disagree with, just in terms of the historical evidence. But I see younger people who are saying, no, they're not buying into that narrative. Um, and, and, and they're living out being good neighbours and loving their neighbour. So... I see the hope as the next generation, but I also see ultimately our hope is in the Lord, isn't it? And we're, we're told to pray for uh, the earth to be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Well, we, do we believe those promises or not? I do. I really do believe those promises. So I believe we can pray for God to honour his name. We can pray for revival. We can trust God to uh, bring many people, multitudes of people, into the joy of knowing Christ. Um, so as I look at the future, I'm hopeful as I look at the younger generation but ultimately I'm hopeful because of the promises of God and I'm hopeful because God is a great God and he is determined to honour his son and he will do that. And finally what are you personally looking forward to about the next year? Seeing God glorified through his people and just watching him act. I I love the local church, I love the church but actually we, we can see God acting in so many ways. We believe that every human being is made in his image, it's not just Christians who do good. There are non-Christians who do extraordinary good as well. I just love seeing God act through, through, through the people he has created. Dr Sharon James from the Christian Institute, thank you so much for joining me on The Profile on Premier Christian Radio. Thank you so much for speaking to me, Abigail. It's been a delight speaking to you. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.